Hello, I'm Billy Lennon, and you're listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Today, I'm talking to Kerry Stow about his piece for us, Fidelity to Refusal, a review of Michael Palmer's The Danish Notebook, published by Nightboat Books. We talk about paratactic poetry, artists bearing the mark of institutions they pass through or work in, and self-writing, amongst other things. Carrie Stow is a poet from the Missouri Ozarks and a library worker in Massachusetts. Recent work can be found or is forthcoming in Bennington Review, Tupelo Quarterly, and American Poetry Review. Hi, thank you for listening. Uh, I'm now with uh, one of our favorite critics at the Cleveland Review of Books, uh, recurring writer for us, Carrie Stahl. Um, that's how I say your last name, right? Stow rhymes with dairy cow. All right. Carrie Stow, um, who reviewed Michael Palmer's The Danish Notebook, recently re-released by Nightboat. Nightboat? I'm Carrie. How the hell's it going? Good. Feeling really great. And as we were talking before recording, there's a Celtics game on tonight. So I am hyped. I got my green socks on. Well, we, we don't care about that here. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. It's, it's, I'm, I'm saying this, this is, you know, it's the only uh, team worth watching after sadly the um, uh, Cleveland was knocked out. We know what but... happened. That was bad. <laughs> that was bad. Okay. So Carrie, um, Tell me a little bit about your process writing uh, this really thorough, um, excellent piece. Even though you did misname Foucault's What is an Author article and called it Death of an Author, which did I had I really, to go, you did. Did it Did it make it, it to publication like that? Actually, yeah, then, then, then I changed it. I changed it. Okay, but, thank you for changing yeah, it. Yeah, no problem. It never <laughs> happened. It's called What is an Author, right? Yeah. Not death of an author. Death of an author is Bart. It's Bart. Yeah. That's yeah. beside the point. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's that misnaming is actually a big part of my process uh, always. And I think actually, uh, I, I'll answer this a little circuitously. The before uh, Michael Credico, who um, uh, edited the piece, uh, I think I had a Sopranos reference in there. Uh, as well that he was just like not only is this wrong it makes it it seems like you haven't watched the show and i was like yeah i haven't watched the show (laughs) right uh but uh but uh, this uh my experience this uh i i i knew this book was coming out um like a you know a year in advance uh and was really excited for it uh it had actually been published in as i mentioned in the review in michael palmer's uh book of his book of selected um prose it being already published i was able to read it before then um and realized that it had a lot of similarities with sort of a lot of crossover with the um kind of new narrative uh books that i love to read um also a lot of the um auto fiction that is being published right now uh annie or now paratactic paragraphic you know slim volumes uh 
And so I was excited to get into that because uh, that's a history I like and a history I write in as well. Uh, and he and Michael Palmer was also a poet uh, associated with the language poets of the Bay Area, um, where he lived for a long time and taught uh, in the 80s and 90s. And that is also a time period of poetry and art that is very um, important to me uh, and compelling to me in as I think comes through in this, or as I hope comes through in this piece, uh, in positive and negative critical ways. Uh, I like thinking with these writers and Michael Palmer is definitely uh, one of my big intercessors. Uh, and so this piece, it was, it, was, it was easy to write because I was very interested in it. And then also difficult to write because I felt like um, it's, I acknowledge it's not my favorite Michael Palmer book. One thing sort of when I got into your review, um, you're kind of spelling out um, Palmer's aesthetic ideology, I guess is a good way to, to put it. Um, you sort of opposed it to this William Carlos Williams idea of poems as machines. And you also likened it to, you said it was a form of like poetry for poetry's sake, which is obviously tied to like art for art's sake. Um, and th that was a against the grain of what was happening culturally in the 70s and 80s. Could you speak a little bit about how and like how it was against yeah, the grains yeah. of the 70s and 80s? And then I, maybe also about how it was maybe different from the poems as machines idea. Right. I love I love theory and I love poetry. And so uh, right. and, and that sort of the those two poles of writing have been uh have worked their way into po po popular poetry and avant-garde poetry um for uh millennia michael palmer as well as william carlos williams were both very ideological theoretical poets uh who um had their books of poems but also had their books of uh theory and ars poetica like craft and essays. Yeah. craft essays exactly and that goes through uh william carlos williams uh his whole kind of crew or his uh successors such as louis zukovsky especially who was a big influence on michael palmer both in poetics poetry writing and, and inspiration in poetry but also poetics of theory yeah the, the images craft freaks yeah exactly the images freaks <laughs> And, and so, and even then, I mean, this was, it kind of jumps, the eras kind of jump around. I mean, Zukovsky was definitely writing uh, up until I think the eighties uh, when Michael Palmer was doing the kind of big thrust of his writing. He started writing, started publishing in the late sixties. What it was popular po or read, you know, and, and even studied academically uh, kind of definitely jumped around. And, and so you know, Zukovsky has fallen in and out of uh, vogue. So is Palmer. Um, but these, this, this way of writing poetry that also is conscious of the philosophy behind it, uh, the effect on the reader, the fidelity to like showing or representing the world in words uh, in a way that, uh, you know, they think that they have never been done before avant-garde, you know, which is, to say what that's different from it's it, you know it's different from what many people would call popular poetry but honestly it's just the the kind of poetry that many people envision when they think of the word poetry which is 
the expression of a personal, you know, narrative or uh, feeling. You think of soliloquy. I'm going to kind of get into that in, in the next question. Awesome. You could just real, real quick, could you talk about the backdrop like of the 70s and 80s political or like cultural current? I mean, it's the difference between like if, um, say, Robert Lowell writing in the 60s and 70s, 50s, 60s and 70s, if he who was someone who was at Harvard before uh, Michael Palmer was um, if if or somebody like Mary Oliver, you know, these poets who are writing these expressions of interiority if they are going to write something like I saw a butterfly outside, you know, 50 bombs dropped on Vietnam today and then going back into being like, and then there's a deer outside my window. It hits a little <laughs> differently than like Michael Palmer writing. I think he did, he did, he did this crazy revision one time of, um, of a William Carlos Williams poem uh, of the red wheelbarrow, but it was about, you know, the Gulf war. Uh, and so in that way, he was taking this poem that was already doing something a little different than just speaking of somebody's interior. Uh, you know, it, it has, it has sort of a shape on the page that is consciously and, uh, developed. And so, and doing that and then tying that to the fact that, you know, we get a lot of our news or we, they did then, I don't know if we do it now, but they got a lot of their news from text. And so there was there was this way of uh, of being like, you know, poetry shouldn't just be about shouldn't just include what's pretty, but we can include, uh, well, what's ugly. <laughs> I mean, well, the trouble the trouble with the trouble with Michael Palmer specifically here, and I could get into that in another review. He is very evasive quite, quite often. And has this tendency to make the language very bare. And, yeah. uh, and I think in that, and definitely what he has, as he develops in his craft essays, uh, that's a conscious choice against sort of the sumptuous, uh, maybe blindfolded uh, or, um, or too prettied up visions of the world that are being, that were being offered uh more popularly yeah so you mentioned robert lowell could you talk a little bit about um i guess like the specter of harvard and like john ashbury and charles bernstein yeah who, uh, you know in ashbury's case was there before palmer and bernstein was after yeah so like those things the confessional mode that was popular at the time yeah and the yeah. corresponding moralism and humanism it may be about how these dynamics connect to you compare the confessional mode to the modern uh, writing one's truth. So yeah. hopefully that wasn't too complicated. I don't know. Maybe no. Um, the... I guess start with like the Harvard thing. Exactly. No, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which anytime you sort of poke the bear of Harvard, um, I know that's Brown's mascot, but uh, what does Harvard have a mascot? Probably not. Um, once you get close to it and start making claims about it, it's going to draw criticism. So I'm walking a tightrope here, but, uh, there was definitely much as, much as how people talk about the Iowa writers workshop, uh, in the, in the fifties and sixties, 
um, as producing a certain uh, dedication to craft and 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 aesthetic choices that kind of have the bear the mark of of the institutions where they were taught. Harvard definitely had. I mean, Harvard has the reputation of being, you know, sort of the college of America uh, and the sort of cultural, high cultural center, especially then of poetry. I mean, the list of poets who came from Harvard prior to Robert Lowell is, you know, engulfing. You think of T.S. Eliot, you think of a lot of people. Uh, And so... And so, yeah, so there is, and I think the reason I really wanted to tie in John Ashbery and Charles Bernstein into this, uh, not just because they were uh, poets from Harvard, but because they were, they had come through that institution and sort of rebelled against the aesthetic, which being confessional, kind of stately, uh, still, still definitely, they were still definitely teaching just formal rhyme and meter at that point as well. Um, but these three people, Ashbery, Palmer, Bernstein, in that order, you know, reacted very similarly in being poets of the avant-garde and being influenced by each other, but all seem also seem to have uh, very different conceptions of what they were doing. I think maybe, and maybe this it's on a polemical scale, I think John Ashbery definitely rebelled but he wasn't always that vocal about it It, it mainly mainly because he had it sort of he would reach back to the history of uh of literature and he would say i can do i can write a book of three big prose poems because you know baudelaire did it Mm -hmm. 100 years ago charles bernstein may be the most polemical of being like no i am creating something new charles bernstein the founder of the language movement in poetry, that Bay Area uh, poetry movement. It was kind of bicoastal, but Bay Area was is usually the uh, epicenter that is spoken of. And then you have Palmer, who has sort of a polemical side or vocally polemical side that Bernstein has. And he writes so many theoretical texts, but he also you know, knows that he's within a tradition and specifically an American tradition, uh, like with poets of the imagist poets and the objectivist poets, Zukovsky, Williams, Duncan. And so, and so, yeah, I mean that, and that's, that's a question that I actually wasn't sure, or that's, that's a fascination of mine is sort of the institutions that people go through and that poets specifically go through and the, the marks that their poetry or other arts uh, bear, uh, but that that's an element that I wasn't sure fit in the uh, in the review initially. I'm glad I think it did, and I'm I hope it did. Uh, but uh, no, it's really interesting and definitely some fertile ground to explore in the future. Skipping over, kind of like uh, when Michael Palmer kind of met his boys, uh, Clark Coolidge, Robert Creeley, and Robert Duncan in Vancouver yeah. when he was like 21. And yeah. sort of, you know, vibed over like 20s and 30s imagist guys and like Zukovsky. And he kind of found a way to like connect his personal vision to a history that he fucked yeah. with. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, could you talk a little bit about how this specific book came to be and why he was kind of 
nervous about taking on the project, maybe like ambivalent about it. Yeah, yeah. This came out of the big question for me, which was just like, why am I not gelling with this book as much as I think I should? Because the the form of it, which is, well, it's called the Danish notebook, and it takes the form of sort of a notebook or a travel notebook or a diary. If people will, if when people pick up the book, which I hope they do, the new edition is even even looks like a travel notebook. So that's a really nice touch. Yeah, it's pretty. Uh, I saw a copy at a book fair the other yeah. day. The book, though, there's a Danish. The, this Danish novelist uh, Iselin uh, Herman, and I hope I'm pronouncing both of those parts right. Solicited a bunch of American poets who he was friends with uh, to write these kinds of books. So specifically, you know, diaristic, occasional books. And I think the intention was just to show here's these authors, and it was and it was authors like. Palmer and authors in his orbit. And I think the intention was to show um, how these very formal experimental authors can, could also sort of loosen up a bit and, and give that, give us a slice of their life. Rosemary Waldrop, uh, one of the poets who was chosen, uh, Rosemary Waldrop, founder of uh, Burning Deck Press, which is a great press and has written many books and published many books like this, in fact had no problem writing her book. Um, she had written a book with uh, her husband, uh, Keith Waldrop, sorry. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and she, had, she, had, she had written books like this before. The one with Keith Waldrop uh, uh, that is sort of the story of their life is really just like, you know, memories of their childhoods just kind of slapped down on paper, ba- sort of arranged and then, you know, bound in a book. Uh, not that it wasn't thought about, but I think the intention of making it something, making it a sort of writing that comes uh, before the whole ideological tightening uh, was the intention. Michael Palmer, on the other hand, uh, knowing that this was going to be a difficult thing for him, decided to, still decided to go through with it, the Danish notebook, uh, and but didn't really know what direction it would take and that was troubling to him and so that's kind of if there is a narrative arc of the book it is the book's uh composition and he quotes a lot of different books sort of starts multiple times does he finish we don't know it's very loose book it's 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 and it's and i don't think uh i hate calling avant-garde poetry and works difficult. Uh, but I think this is a difficult book. Uh, it was difficult for me just, and all, because I think it was difficult for Michael Palmer to write. And you can really feel that struggle uh, to make things cohere. Uh, now, where his book kind of picks up, where this book kind of picks up speed is when he gets into this uh, memory of uh, this, you know, short love affair that he had as a young man, uh, which is, you know, and I think this is what I'm most critical of, cursory, and and I think he could have spent a lot more time on it and thinking about it because the the woman in the story is pretty cipheral and there's there's not much to her, and so you have the sort of cipheral, you know, artist without an ident writer without an identity, and then you have all the characters he's talking about also sort of wiped out of 
identity. And so it's, uh, it's weird. Yeah, but, it was weird. She, she kind of like got, you know, like kidnapped. Yeah. Like by the Hungarian Stasi or some shit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so what was lacking to you about this book? And then I'll ask one more question after this, and then maybe yeah. we can. I'm a huge fan of Nightboat books, uh, and they publish a lot of. Uh, I'm a before I started reviewing books, I was a prose poet, and I even wrote a diary project. Uh, my biggest, my biggest writing project to date was the diary, a COVID diary project, uh, and so this is in my wheelhouse. Yeah, Hypom Hypom Namada. Yeah, uh, hyponomata. Yeah, self writing. Yeah, yeah. self writing. Um, thank you, Foucault, for bringing that back. Uh, <laughs> right as it is dying. Well, TikTok's the new hyponomata. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Michael Palmer, get on TikTok. Uh, but po- poets that I love, uh, Nathaniel, who's published on Nightbook Books, also Banu Kapil, who is a god to me. Um, also write books that uh, are paragraphic portions of it seem you're part of the part of the drama of reading it is connecting these uh, fragments, you know, as it as the reading goes on and thinking, okay, well, how does this thing 80 pages in relate to the thing on page three? Uh, and so there's a backwards and forwards in the book, in those books that I really uh, enjoy that I don't necessarily think that Palmer got to. Now, it's a little unfair to Palmer to say that he should have known, but because, you know, this, uh, this type of book is in some ways, you know, the oldest form of book. It's self-writing. It's people, somebody writing in their diary. Um but also a new kind of newfangled development of that where you're not just writing a diary, but you're writing a diary for someone. I think, I think, I think the drama of, of sort of giving up your poetic ideology to speak about yourself for once, right. Doesn't have the same, doesn't hit the same now when a lot of us are writing about ourselves, you know, uh, more than ever uh but in a critical way right it's not we're not writing about ourselves uncritically or you know we're just in a new period right yeah and so and so this book you know it uh if that is supposed to be the central drama or sympathy we're supposed to have with the speaker um i just don't i just don't feel it i don't buy it uh fair enough yeah I'm compelled nonetheless. And I think that's a good place to end it. Um, cool. Carrie, good luck to the Celtics. Um, you going to stay in and watch it? I'm going to, I'm going to drink some brewskis on the roof. Nice. I think. Yeah. And then maybe come down. Um, I'm going to be hanging with my friend from England right now. So, Oh, sweet. Yeah. I don't know how much he gives a fuck, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> All right, dude. Um, I'll see you soon. Thanks so yeah. much for your time. And yeah, take care. Cool. I'm gonna. Uh, we're gonna be in Boston until August. So it, whenever you're, whenever you're in, hit me up. Sounds good, man. Take care. Right. We'll go swimming. Bye. Sounds good. Bye. 
Thank you for listening to the Cleveland Review of Books podcast. Producer A-Live of Cleveland's own Moomin Collective graciously provided the music we used for the intro, as well as the one you are listening to now. We publish reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts online at clereviewofbooks.com about three to four times per week. We recommend signing up for our bi-weekly newsletter, a link to which can be found in the show notes as we all adjust to a shifting social media environment. You can also purchase print issues and merch, including hats, totes, and shirts in our online store. I'd also like to shout out all of our amazing editors, including Zach Peckham, Bree DeMonda, Robert Giddings, Alana Pakros, Angelo Maniage, Morgan Ford, Michael Credico, Helen Rauner, Jacob Brueggemann, Philip Harris, Ali Black, Isabel Blakeway Phillips, Eli Scope, and R.A. Washington. See you next time.